This morning we're going to be uh, going through the second half of these messages that I've entitled The Galling Generosity of God. And uh, before we jump into this, um, what a, a great gospel text this morning uh, to guide us and to, to focus us. Um, just want to say that uh, we have very good news for you this morning. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm looking for somebody who wants to hear good news this morning. Okay, well, I mean, hopefully it's really good news. Hopefully it's news of historic proportions. It is epic news. It's not fake news. It is real news. It is good news. I can't, sh- I, it would be disrespectful for me to share this good news with you. So I'm going to ask Brent, Pastor Brent, to come up on the platform and stand next to me. Because this brother, pastor, father, saint in this house, pardon my French, has busted his tail off and on for a long time. Phone calls and meetings and so on. And something happened this week that I'm not going to say it. I want him to say it, and I want you to get all Pentecostal when he does. We have a signed contract. Uh, I didn't think this was ever going to happen, but um, we have a purchase of this building. That contract is done and sealed, and uh, as I mentioned to you before, we, God has blessed us amazingly with the purchase of this building, and then we have a signed contract on the new building, and it uh, should close before Christmas around there, and so um, just uh, be praying for us as we kind of, we're doing inspections and all that kind of stuff, and we don't think there's anything that's going to fall apart um, but be praying for all of that smooth, you know, to, be, to go smooth. And then just be praying for the transition. I know this is a change. You know, all change is challenging uh, for any church. And even though it's good things going on, we believe, uh, change is challenging. And so uh, we're going to have a lot of transition in regards to the timing and how all this proceeds. And we may even be sharing the building for a month or so with the, the church that's purchasing our building and so we may have to adjust some service times and those kind of things for about 30 or 60 days. And so, but we're all, this is three churches all interconnecting and God is blessing each and every one of these churches. And so it's just, it's not, it's, you just could not have made this story up, um, how all of this is working. And so, so just stay in prayer. Thank you. We're excited. And as uh, Brent mentioned, we are going to be having some of those logistical changes that we're starting uh, the first Sunday of Advent. I was a little bit confusing uh, last Sunday because I used the word Advent as a verb, sort of like the Advent. Um, we're, the December 3rd is when our new year begins. We've only got one more Sunday till our year is done. And our new year begins December 3rd, and that Sunday will begin to be in a one-service schedule And that's going to give us a month to adjust and get ready because when January comes, we have to be in one service because we're going to be sharing this building. So we're working right now. I'm not going to say we. Brent is working right now with the realtor. You like that? I was like, we're working. No, Brent is talking to the realtor and negotiating with uh, Christchurch specifically how that service time is going to work out. And we will, by faith, we're going to announce a service time next Sunday. (laughs) 
we are going to announce that, but it will be an email blast. It'll be on social media and all the other formats. So please, uh, if you have friends that weren't here this Sunday, feel free, be encouraged to share this good news with them. Amen? Amen. Okay, last uh, week's sermon uh, was quite a doozy. I had waited a long time to preach this uh, sermon. And if you didn't hear it, I would encourage you to go to our website and listen or watch that sermon uh, because what I was trying to do last week was lay foundation for today's message. And so uh, I spent a lot of time last Sunday critiquing what is commonly referred to as the prosperity gospel. Now, uh, can I say this? I am very grateful that none of us in this room are saved because of the rightness of our doctrine. I'm going to say that one more time because we should all say amen to that one. We are not saved by the rightness of our doctrine. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and uh, our doctrine matters. It's very important. I'm not suggesting that that's, I mean, clearly you're in sanctuary, so you know teaching matters. Um, but here's the thing. We must walk faithfully with the light we have, with the light we have, not with the light we don't have. And uh, I want to I be very clear this morning that I meant in no way, I, I hope I didn't, but if it came across in any way, I wasn't intending to disparage any of our friends or brothers and sisters or people who gleefully embrace the prosperity doctrine. I was just looking to disparage the doctrine. That was kind of a joke, a New York joke, I guess. <laughs> um, no, but, but quite seriously, I mean... Um, I grew up uh, classical Pentecostal, Assemblies of God. My wife, pray for her, Italian Pentecostal, even more intense. Uh, and so this is just crazy town, like just looking at me as crazy town for my extended family. And I love them, and I support them, and I embrace them, and I honor them, and I respect them, and I don't argue with them for the most part. Um, but so I, I just want to be abundantly clear Last Sunday, if you go back and watch it again, uh, if there was any sense or you got any sense, this is not about people. This is about a teaching. This is about a doctrine. And it's a doctrine that I did intend to disparage. I did intend to critique it because I don't think it's faithful to the scriptures. I can't help but wonder, I mean, if it really is unreasonable, as I did last week, to compare it to the idolatry that we see with the golden calf. I can't help but wonder, does that teaching sound more like the American dream at its worst than the Sermon on the Mount? And here's what I will say. It has wounded us, and it has limited our capacity for Christ-likeness and for generosity. Because any time now that a man or woman gets in front of a group of people to teach about money, to talk about giving, to talk about generosity... If you're not scared to death, you're an idiot because the people you're speaking to have been wounded. They have been taken advantage of. They have been hurt by what I consider to be false teaching. And so I felt as I prayed and prepared for this message, the Lord said, you cannot go in and preach about these things. You have to lay foundation, make it abundantly clear that this is not that. (laughs) Generosity and prosperity gospel are not kissing cousins. They are very, very far removed. I think today's gospel text is a prime example of how things have gone wrong with a lot of our teaching on money. Because the gospel text that we heard this morning is a parable 
about stewardship. And, uh, I mean, I have heard this warped. The very text that you heard read over you, I've heard it warped into a warning that if you don't tithe and you don't give and you don't turn what your seed into some great harvest, you're in trouble. I've even heard preachers, that verse, and there's one verse that I think is particularly galling and it might have bothered you. Verse 29 where it says, the one who has more will be given. And the one who doesn't have what he does have will be taken away. I've actually heard preachers use that verse to boast about their own lives. That God is in that prosperity circle. That I have a lot and that's why God's, you know, I'm commanding more money to come my way. That is not what the text is about. Can I be abundantly clear that our gospel text is not about getting rich this morning. Our gospel text is not about getting rich. Now, John Chrysostom, who you'll hear me quote from time to time, considered by many to be the greatest preacher in the first millennium and maybe our greatest preacher ever, what does he say about this text? Think of this as a little bit different than prosperity gospel. He says, let us therefore contribute whatever we have, wealth, diligence, or caregiving, for our neighbor's advantage. For this end, God gave us speech and hands and feet and strength of body and mind and understanding that we might use all these things both for our own salvation and for our neighbor's advantage. Okay, that's a little bit different. Now suddenly, I am using the goodness of God, which is not just my wealth. It is my diligence and it is my caregiving. Look at these two dimensions, for my salvation and for my neighbor's advantage. Oh, I will quote that one all day. And we can say amen to that one all day. And I think there are two very general principles that we can pull, or general ideas, insights that we can pull out of this parable this morning. And number one is that when fear governs our stewardship, we almost certainly will fail. Think about it. That guy with the one talent, he said, I knew, he was scared to death of the master. He was scared to death that something would go wrong if he let go of what was in his hands. And if fear is sitting at the bottom of our hearts this morning, we almost certainly will fail. And in an ironic way, right? Because the master says, well, if you were so afraid of me, you should have at least put this in the bank. If you knew I was that intense, you should have conducted yourselves differently. I think there's something about fear that is so deeply irrational and so jarring to our souls that if it's sitting there when it comes to our finances, when it comes to our time, when it comes to our talents, we're going to make bad decisions. And I think the second general insight I would say is this, that God often entrusts whatever it may be, finances or skill. But he entrusts them to us based on our ability. Our ability to steward it well. Our ability to respond well. You ever think about that word responsibility? The ability to respond to a given situation well. That's what the word is getting at. What does the text say? He says he gave one five, another two, and another one each according to his ability. If you ever wanted a verse that would point to the idea that God's not going to give you more than you can bear, which is not a verse in the Bible, by the way. (laughs) Oxygen out of the room. (laughs) Uh, It's this verse. 
See, in terms of God not giving you more than you can bear, I think in God's love, it's not that he's not going to give you more problems. He's not going to give you more blessings. He's not going to give me more money than I can bear because God knows the lottery would wreck me right now. Hello. A dead rich uncle would ruin my life right now because I wouldn't be able to respond to it well. And there's something about this that I think is a little bit galling to American sensibilities because we have this democratic, egalitarian, very sort of flat idea of how things are supposed to happen. And when there's any sort of inequity, we get very upset. And can I at least encourage you to consider this morning the possibility that in the kingdom of God, equity in this particular sense is not always what God is shooting for. He's going to give some of us one. He's going to give some of us two. He's going to give some of us five. And that's not the point. How about this one? The, the parable of the idle servants. Where Jesus goes out. and Well, Jesus tells the story of the man who goes out. And at six o'clock in the morning, he hires workers and says, Hey, I'll pay you a hundred bucks if you work for me today. Great. 8.45, the guy's like, Let me go back and see if I can get some more workers. Nine o'clock, picks up some more workers. And what does he say? I'll give you a hundred bucks if you work the day for me. But the guys that came on at six, they didn't know that. So more workers come up. They're not thinking anything of it. Lunch break. More workers show up. Nobody knows that everybody's been offered a hundred bucks to work the day. How about the guys that show up after the afternoon break at three o'clock? And they're going to work for a hundred bucks. At the end of the day, the boss is going to drop them all off. And what happens? He pays them all in front of each other. And he starts with the guys that came on last, and he gives them 100 bucks. So the guy that came on at 6 a.m. is like, oh, man, I'm getting some kind of payday. And what is he thinking when the lunch crew gets 100 bucks? No. The 9 o'clock crew, 100 bucks. By the time he comes to that 6 o'clock crew with a $100 bill, they are livid, right? Because it's just not fair. Thank you. Has anybody here ever been bothered by these sorts of inequities we see in culture? Thank you. We can join with the psalmist. I love this. I think you might be able to resonate. I think everybody can resonate with this on some level if we're honest. In Psalm 73, uh, the psalmist says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, And look at this, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And look at the the 12th verse of Psalm 73. Such are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in their riches. There's something inside of us that feels like if God was God, he would sort of flip the script a little bit. He would tip those scales in a more equitable fashion. It doesn't always work that way. When... The parable of the talents is told in Luke. It's very interesting because it comes on the heels of another story. It comes on the heels of the story of Zacchaeus. And when I was preparing for this sermon, that was the story that the Holy Spirit drew me to. If you do have a Bible, turn to Luke 19. Many of us know the story from Sunday school. The first verse, talking of Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. Jesus has no plans to stay in this town. A man was there named Zacchaeus. 
He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So he's one of the bad guys from Psalm 73. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So over time, and based on regions, uh, physiology changes. And based on average heights 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, the chances of Zacchaeus being five feet are slim to none. He's below five feet because the average man would have been about five and a half feet tall. Remember, it talks about Saul being head and shoulders above all of the men of Israel, right? He was not Wilt Chamberlain. Everybody was just much shorter. (laughs) So Zacchaeus is probably four foot 11, not going to heaven. And uh, he can't see Jesus because of the crowd. And uh, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Hmm. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it were galled. They began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. When we hear this story, background is incredibly important. So the text, we have to realize our Bibles, we have a chapter 19 verse 1, but originally there aren't chapter breaks, there aren't chapter headings. So we have to see a a very powerful sequence here. In the 18th chapter of Luke, Jesus tells a parable, and the parable is of the Pharisee, the religious leader, and the tax collector. Now check this out. Right after the parable, he has a conversation. This is not a story. This is implied to be a real conversation with the rich young ruler, who, by implication, is a Pharisee. He's very wealthy, and he's very ethical. This is different than Zacchaeus, who's very wealthy and not very ethical. Okay? And Jesus famously says to the rich young ruler, There's one thing you're lacking. This is so interesting. There's one thing you're lacking. Now, what is the implication? If you're lacking, you need to go and get something, right? No. He said, there's one thing you're lacking. Take all that you have and give it to the poor. This is the upside-down kingdom of God. When you lack things, get rid of them. This is what he says in this 18th chapter. In a conversation. And the young man walks away with his head hung down because he, it's too much. And what is Jesus' response? You all know this. He says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to go into heaven. Now here's the amazing thing. The disciples say, are you kidding me? Who can go into heaven then? Check this out. In their culture, they thought if you were rich, it was a sign of spiritual maturity. Does it sound familiar? 
They're saying, wait a minute, you're saying rich people can't get into heaven? Then none of us have a chance because the rich people clearly have God's favor. I love on this text, Frederick Beekner, who's a uh, Presbyterian preacher, he says this, Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Maybe the reason is not that the rich are so wicked they're kept out of the place, but that they're so out of touch with reality that they can't see it's a place worth getting into. The context matters here. Jesus has been talking about this contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And, oh, look at this. He bumps into a Pharisee. And what does he talk about? He talks about money. Guess what? It doesn't turn out so well. And then on his way to Jericho, he heals not just a blind man, but a blind man who is a beggar. Guess what beggars don't have? Money. Guess what blind people don't have? Vision. They can't see. I love what Bishop T.D. Jake said about this text. He said, the blind man couldn't see Jesus, but he could hear him, and he could shout. So just work with what you got. <laughs> he heard that Jesus was coming. He didn't see him, but he heard that Jesus was coming by, and he started shouting. And what happens? The crowd gets all upset. Stop it, stop it, stop it. And he cries out all the more. And Jesus comes and brings healing. He brings sight to a blind beggar, a man who is physically limited, socially limited. And right out of that story, as he's coming into Jericho, he meets somebody who's physically limited. He can't see, not because he's blind, but because he's short. Do you see how all these things are coming together? This is unbelievable. All these things are coming together leading up to Luke's telling of the parable of the talents. It's like the Holy Spirit knew. (laughs) And here is, you know, vertically challenged Zacchaeus. Corrupt Zacchaeus. Rich like the young ruler, but not keeping the commandments like the young ruler. You see, tax collectors are villains. We really can't appreciate it. And I might have a better chance of appreciating it because I'm from the New York City area. And we had something called the Mafia. I don't know if you have the Mafia in Oklahoma. (laughs) Yes? Some Mafia. They've retired and moved here, I guess. But my parents back in New York, they just sold their house and they lived next to a Mafia, um, how would you say it, PR person. You know, the guy who has a baseball bat. That guy? Yeah. His name was Vinny the Knife. Um, They're extortionists. Tax collectors are people who are Jewish, but they're collaborating with the Roman Empire to extort money out of impoverished Jewish people. The law of God forbids Jewish people to charge interest to one another. He's going far above and beyond that. He's taking money from them for Rome at his own profit. He is the chief villain. He is on the most wanted list. There's a reason the crowd would not let him through to the front of the line. 
I don't even know if maybe he didn't even bother with the crowd for fear he might be attacked. He is unclean. Why is he unclean? Because they're convinced there's no way he tithes on his foodstuffs. So all of his food is contaminated. He's a sinner of the highest rank. On some levels, worse than a Gentile because he should know better. And he's rich because of this collaboration with the Romans. If that wasn't bad enough, he's the chief tax collector. So he's organizing, he's mobilizing all the other tax collectors. He's got the most tenure of all the tax collectors. He's notorious. He's on their most wanted list. He does two very odd things in the text. Number one, he runs. He runs. Number two, he climbs a tree. Adult males in the ancient Near East do not run, and they do not climb trees. It is humiliating, and it is undignified. It's what makes the story of the prodigal so powerful is that when the father sees the son coming back, he picks up his robe and he runs to him. There's this sense of absolute humility and the willingness to run in the sense of desperation. And climbing a tree is the stuff of children. It is not the stuff of affluent cultural leaders. What's interesting to me in this text is how does Jesus know his name? Jesus walking down the street by implication, with a throng of people around him, which would have been normal. He had just healed a blind man outside of town. He's got a crowd with him. And he looks up and he sees a small man hanging out of a tree. And he calls him by name. Now, there are two, at least two possible explanations for this. One is very practical, is that he sees him and everybody starts jeering because it's Zacchaeus and they know him. And they're calling out his name like, oh, don't have anything to do with that guy. He's a bad guy. But I think there's another possibility here. And that is this is the same Jesus who's been reading people's minds throughout the gospel up until this point. Knowing what was in people's hearts. Knowing what people were thinking and going to ask him. I don't think knowing a guy's name is too hard for Jesus. But I think it means a lot to me because it speaks to Jesus' powers of observation, his, his depth of knowledge, the fact that Jesus is aware of our situations. And I prefer this morning to tell you that Jesus knows your name. I prefer to tell you that Jesus, by virtue of the fact that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is God the Son, that he, from the beginning he was, he has the capacity and he does, in fact, know your name. And he's not afraid to call it. But you have to understand, when he calls your name, the first thing that might come to your heart is not joy and warmth and pink clouds of fluff flying in the air. You may be utterly scared to death because now everybody knows you're in the tree. And here is where we find the galling generosity of God. Jesus had the audacity to invite himself to this man's house. Look at the way Jesus says this. He is incredible. He was not raised right. <laughs> what does he say? He says, hurry up and get down out of the tree. <laughs> okay. Yes, sir. And what, why? Hurry up, because I must stay at your house today. 
don't anybody come up to me after the service and say this to me, because you are not coming to my house today. <laughs> Listen, it was as rude then as it would be now. You don't walk up to people and invite yourself over their house. Who does Jesus think he is? <laughs> I just want that to sit out there with you for a minute. Who does he think he is? Maybe he's allowed to do this. Maybe this is okay. But the second thing is that Jesus is no longer passing through Jericho. The first verse says that he was entering Jericho with the intention of passing through it. And here's the galling reality. This great teacher, this powerful healer who's just healed a man, the one thing everybody in Jericho would have wanted was Jesus to stay in town. And it was the one thing Jesus was not determined to do. But suddenly Jesus is willing to change his plans and stay in Jericho because of Zacchaeus? Highly offensive. We have to understand that if we keep reading through the text, what comes right after the parable, after this story, parable of the talents, what's the next story? The triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Kind of an important gig. This is, this is a big deal. This is an important moment. This is prophecy being fulfilled. This is the setup of the week of his passion. He came to seek and to save the lost, and he saves us ultimately on the cross of Calvary, and he's willing to interrupt his iCal to stay in a town he had no intention of staying at because he was going to Jerusalem for Zacchaeus. By stepping into Zacchaeus' home, he became unclean, ceremonially unclean. He has jeopardized his ability to celebrate Passover because it's close. He has tarnished his impeccable reputation as a leader and a healer among the Jewish people. Everything, all the good that just happened outside of town with the beggar has now been given up and washed away. The fact is, in this socially awkward and unconventional moment, we see Jesus' act of costly love. This is the generosity of God on full display. If there ever was an unworthy sinner... It's Zacchaeus. If there ever was a price being paid, Jesus is paying it to engage him, to honor him. What's amazing about this story is this story is one of the few examples in all of Scripture where we actually get to peek in and observe the response of a recipient of costly love. Don't let this story be wasted on you this morning because in the parable of the prodigal, we never get to see how the prodigal conducts himself at the feast the father prepares. In the story of the Good Samaritan, we never get to see how the wounded man responds to the generosity of that Samaritan man. But in this story, where Jesus himself is now in real time giving of his very person to the most unqualified recipient. We get to watch 
as he responds to Jesus' act of costly love. And the first thing we see here is that he is transformed. Specifically in the sense that he suddenly realized the value of getting rid of stuff. He's transformed. His value system is upended. And suddenly as we hear them say in the book of Acts, it is better to give than to receive. Zacchaeus learns this in a quick moment. He didn't add anything to Jesus. He had nothing to give Jesus. Jesus wasn't benefited in any way by his interaction with Zacchaeus. You see, no one told Zacchaeus to give away his possessions to the poor. Jesus told the rich young ruler, remember Pharisees, tax collectors, Jesus tells the rich young ruler, give away what you have to the poor. Can't do it. Jesus says nothing to Zacchaeus. He just says, I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus says, half my stuff's going to the poor. It's transformative. The second thing is it's catalytic. In other words, it's not just about a changed heart. It's about observably different action. What does he say? He says, look at these numbers. Half, 50%, and four times I'm going to restore to those that I've defrauded. Well, here's what's happening in ancient Near East culture. It, it, this is imp- he can't do this. This is logistically impossible. He doesn't have enough money to pull this off. Because if he's given away half of his money to the poor, he can't give four times to the people he's defrauded. What he's doing is an acceptable social move, and that is he's exaggerating to let everybody know. If, if, if Zacchaeus had said, listen, Jesus, this is great that you're here. I'm really amazed. I'm going to do the best I can to really make things right. I, I've made a mess of things. Nobody would have believed him. In that culture, nobody would have believed him. It would have been empty words, hot air, lip service. He doesn't mean it. But when he basically says, I can't give everything that I have to the poor because there are people that aren't necessarily poor, but they've been wronged. I have to do that too. And I'm going to do it till everything's gone. That's what he's saying. These are measurable actions. Kenneth Bailey, who is somebody that I use a lot because I don't have, uh, I'm not a Hebrew scholar and I'm not a a scholar in the traditions of the ancient Near East, but Kenneth Bailey is a scholar who lived in uh, the Middle East for many, many years. And uh, his insights on these sorts of things are amazing. He says this on this story. He says, any obedience to the person of Jesus will necessarily commence with his life as the model. The costly love that Zacchaeus received will become the standard for what Zacchaeus is about to do. In other words, this glimpse into what's it like to receive the costly love of Jesus, I'll tell you what it's like. It looks like a person who turns around and displays that same sort of love to other people. In other words, the generosity of God comes in and so overwhelms us that when we really receive it faithfully, we can't help but turn around. I just want, I just want to close with, with these thoughts from 2 Corinthians 8. Because Paul is writing to this church that's infamous in Scripture, um, and he's talking to them about generosity. 
And they have been raising money for a, uh, the poor. They have been raising money. Churches across the region have been raising money, and they were going to pool their resources together for this project. And um, Paul has to motivate Corinth to action, which is kind of sad because it's an affluent city. Gordon Fee, who his, his comments on the Corinthians are just fantastic. He says, uh, first century Corinth is like New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas combined all into one. So if you want to move there, by all means. Um, this is a very metropolitan, cosmopolitan sort of place, and Paul's having to motivate them to give. Like, please, come on. So does he say, listen, if you give, God's going to give it back to you. Press down, shaking together, running over into your lap. It's going to come forth. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. <laughs> See, now you all know I could, I could go there if you want me to go there. I, I, won't, I won't do that. I won't do that. He doesn't say that. But look, look at what he does say, okay? Chapter 8 in, in verse 7. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, look at this, we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command. And please, can we just underscore that right now? I'm not saying any of these things as a command this morning. I understand that when I look at this room of people, I see people from all walks of life. There are people here who are unemployed. There are people here who are financially struggling. There are people here who have not let themselves get into a vulnerable place with God. Everybody's in a different sort of place. So I don't say these things as commands this morning. I say these things with the hope that the Holy Spirit is going to transpose them into the key of your life in a way that you can respond faithfully from your spot, from your place, from your station in life. There are times in our lives where we don't have the proverbial two nickels to rub together. And there are times in our lives where we have money in a savings account. Those are very different stations in life. And the Holy Spirit has the ability, I'm convinced, to take this text, to take this sermon, and to transpose it into the key of your life, which is what my prayer is this morning. But what does he say? I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. Now, here's how Paul's going to motivate them. For you know, verse 9, the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Was Jesus rich in monetary things? No, that's not what he's talking about. And yet, how many times do we take these texts to turn into monetary wealth? Friends, I submit to you that what Paul is trying to say is, knowing how generous Jesus has been to us, how can we not be radically generous people? Please understand, the generosity of Jesus killed him. In the end, 
Paul says this in the ninth chapter because he's still talking about it. Verse 11, he says, You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity. And I love this phrase, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. We're not generous so that we'll get more stuff. We're generous so that it will produce thanksgiving to God. We're generous because in our generosity, that is a response to the generosity of Jesus on the cross, the name of Jesus is lifted high. We're generous because as we give recklessly, as we give almost with with abandon, when we give of our very lives, not just our checkbooks, there are people in this room that could write a check for $1,000 and would be happy to do it as long as I don't bother their time. And oh, well, I'm generous, I gave $1,000, but don't ask me to, to do something. And there are other people in this room who could only dream of writing a check for $1,000 and feel like giving their talents or their time is somehow not as good. This is all demonic. This is all demonic because at the heart of it, it's not about the numbers that are on the check. It's, not about, it's about the generosity of a heart. And it's a heart that's looking at Jesus hanging on a cross And saying, how can I be stingy in the face of this? If giving in some meaningful way is the very essence of Christ's love, then our willingness to embody Christ-like generosity here in sanctuary by giving of our time, by giving of our talent, by giving of our treasure. I wonder if it couldn't be the way to fulfill the Lord's commandment. If I connect this sense of love with generosity, what does Jesus say in John 13, verse 34? I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. It sounds like Paul again, right? Paul sounds like this. You should also love one another that way. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, what does that look like? Generosity. Opening up our wallets, opening up our homes, opening up our calendars, and saying, I'd rather spend the money on this. I'd rather spend the time on this. But you're worth it. Sanctuary to me, I've been here for three months. To me, it seems to be on the cusp of an incredible shift in her identity. To not merely being a Sunday morning collective, but becoming a uniquely committed community of brothers and sisters who know one another's names, Did you hear what Dr. Green said the last time he was here? You can't help people that you don't know. If 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 all you can do right now, and I I mean this, and and honestly, this is this is something the Lord. When I say this, my wife's going to fall off the front seat of the church. Okay, but I sat. I sat. Honestly, I'm going to tell you the truth. I sat with Bishop Ed this week, uh, last week, and I just talked about you for a long time. All good, I promise, all good. 
And he, he put me in my place. And I say, yes, I receive that. There are some people that what you're doing right now, your level of commitment, it's all you can do. It's all you can do. And I, I, and that, I understand that. And I commend you for that. And I thank you for that. And then there are other, others of us in this room that need to be challenged. And I think the challenge is to put all of ourselves into this. To put all of ourselves into this. And if, if, if all you have to give is two Sundays a month, that's all you have to give. And that's between you and the Lord. And I, I, I thank you for being here two Sundays a month. But I think if the world is going to know, if Tulsa is going to know, what did Jesus say? That we're his disciples. It's going to be by the love that we have for one another. I almost feel like something's a little bit off about, you know, we can talk about reaching the world. We can talk about reaching people on the margins, but we don't know people in the next section from us. And so I, I want to challenge you this morning to let the Holy Spirit in. To do what only he can do. You know, sanctuary will always be a place of safety. It will always be a place of healing. But can it also become a place of building? Can it also be a, become a place of innovation? Well, here's the thing. Building and innovation cannot happen with generous hearts. Without generous hearts. We, we, we have to open up our lives and if it kills us, we walked in his footsteps. But I want you to understand that my heart is not in a lot of the bad teaching that we've heard over the years that has wounded us and it has limited us. And I'm inviting you to join me. Here I am, 1,500 miles from home, right? I'm all in. <laughs> I'm all in. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we are grateful that you are building your church. I'm not building your church. Nobody in this room is building your church. You are building your church. You are shaping us. You are arranging us. You are calling us. You are healing us. You are challenging us in ways that are fit to us. And my prayer this morning is that all of us in this room would hear you calling us up higher, that we would hear you inviting us into a new level of risk, into a new level of openness and generosity. And if it feels galling to us, if we grumble, it's probably because that's where you're leading us. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your perfect model, your perfect example, your life, your faithfulness. And I pray, oh God, that nobody in this room would feel condemned, commanded, pushed around, but we'd all feel challenged just simply to look at your life, Jesus, and be inspired by that, be guided by that, be governed by your life.
and your death and your resurrection. And I pray all of this in your name.